0: Hey everyone, welcome back to Here in Apologetics. Pumped you're joining us today. Today I have Dr. Lydia McGrew. We're going to be talking about her new book on the historical reliability of the Gospel of John, The Eye of the Beholder. So Dr. McGrew, thank you so much for joining me and how are you doing today?
1: It's great to be here, Zach. Thank you so much for having me. Yeah, I'm super pumped
0: for this conversation to look at the historicity of the Gospel of John in your new book. There's so many fun things to look at, and we'll only scratch the surface of this book, which is linked down below. Um, so before we get into this, can you just talk a little bit about like who you are and what you do to get started?
1: Sure. So my name is Lydia McGrew. I'm a um, analytic philosopher. I have a PhD in English from Vanderbilt University, but then Right away when I got my PhD, I almost immediately began working in uh, philosophy, really, instead of English. And so I've got a long publication record there um, in especially the theory of knowledge and especially um, what's called formal epistemology, where you apply probability theory to the theory of knowledge. And then about um, mm, five years ago, thereabouts, I, I really began turning my attention to New Testament studies. Previously, I had done a lot in philosophy of religion, and uh, my husband and I, back in 2009, Timothy McGrew, we wrote the article on uh, defending the resurrection of Jesus for the Blackwell Companion to Natural Theology. So um, we've had an interest for a very long time in these things. I began working intensively in uh, New Testament studies and cross disciplinary work, applying my work in um, epistemology theory of knowledge to the New Testament. My first book was in New Testament was published in 2017. That was uh, hidden in plain view on the argument from what are called undesigned coincidences, an idea that I got from my husband who in turn got it from scholars from the 19th century and was reviving that. Um, And then in uh, 2020, no, late 2019, December 2019, I published uh, The Mirror or the Mask, Liberating the Gospels from Literary Devices, and that's more defending uh, the gospels against certain attacks on them and on their robust historicity. And then earlier this year in uh, the beginning of March, I published The Eye of the Beholder that we're especially going to be talking about today. And then during that time, I've also continued uh, writing in philosophy as well.
0: I appreciate your work. And I read your, um, you're and your husband's article in the Blackwell on the case for the resurrection just over the spring. And like since then, I've been really hooked on like Bayes theorem and thinking about like, that's a good way of like assessing things. Um, So I really enjoyed that article and it was probably one of the best cases for the resurrection I've read. Um, So I enjoyed that a lot. So Appreciate that. And today we'll have to lead up for the side and talk about the historicity of John. Um, So can you just talk about in the beginning, just can you give an overview of like the landscape of the debate currently on the historicity of the gospel according to John?
1: So I'm going to go back a little bit historically um, in the 19th century and early 20th century, there was a huge amount of um, higher critical attack upon John by, you know, mostly skeptical, very what we would think of as very liberal uh, higher critics. And they made very extreme claims, like that the the Gospel of John was written in the second century, uh, you know, way after, way, way after all, you know, the apostles were dead. Uh, We had no idea who wrote it, and it was just historically worthless. So the, these extreme claims started to be reevaluated in the 20th century. As early as 1935, a, a papyrus fragment was discovered, uh, known as P52, which required the, the reevaluation of that late, late, late dating for it. Uh, then, in, 19, in 1976, the, in some ways, theologically liberal scholar uh, John a. T., uh, J a. T Robinson actually wrote arguing that uh, the gospel was written quite early. And so, which was considered a very conservative position. And then in the early 21st century, a session called John, Jesus, and History got started at the Society for Biblical Literature, which is a very broad body uh, studying the Gospels. It's not confined to Christians and certainly not to conservatives. But this session got started and, and began sort of re- rehabilitating John, you might say, you know, like, um, okay, John is another source for the history of of the historical Jesus. Okay, there is history in John, you know, that kind of thing. And that was considered, you know, radical in a sense. Um, And that would be like in 2002 or thereabouts. And I think what's really happened is this, because the doubts about John were so extreme that we've never gotten back to the point fully where the idea that John is just all history, you know, that he never, he never makes anything up. He just is historically straightforward. That's not even fully on the table yet in in a lot of scholarship, and um, I think we, you know, we can talk about this more. But I think this is part of why even some evangelical scholars have sort of acquiesced in this idea that John is at least in part invented, and so forth. So that the position I'm taking, um, and I, I am by no means the only one. Don't get me wrong, but. Um, it's considered in the larger scholarly community. So when you're including the liberals as well as the conservatives, the position I'm taking that John doesn't change anything historical is is considered kind of radical, even though it's, it's the same position as that of say D.A. Carson or Craig Blomberg, um, some of these, some of those evangelical scholars, it's not like I'm all alone out here, you know, I'm a crank. Uh, in fact, the book was endorsed by quite a number of, uh, you know, high-profile names as being worth reading, but even so, it is considered by some, even among evangelicals, to be somehow too strong, and I think that's because of that back history, that it was, you know, it's like, so, sort of, you know, you bend the stick way over this way, and, you know, you're never, you may never really get it all the way back. And I think there are, there are liberal scholars who have this idea that we got to have, I call it a glass ceiling, you know, like John can never be more historical than this. It's like, okay, we can have some history in there, but you know, don't go too far with that. And so I think that's kind of where uh, that debate is and how John is being held back from being fully appreciated.
0: It's super interesting, um, just like everything going on here. And one thing that really stuck out to me as I began to read your book was the surprising number of evangelical scholars who um, potentially even full out question the historical reliability of John. So in the book, you talk about like Craig Keener and Craig Evans, and I believe Mike Lacona. So can you just elaborate on like, the doubts among even like the evangelical community among about like the historical reliability of John?
1: Yeah, so I mean, I think that there's a there's a range within the evangelical community and i just named some scholars you know peter peter j williams da carson uh and some who died not all that long ago like john winham for example uh you know is is the late but he's he hasn't been dead all that long you know and um some of these who who do hold a very robust view of historicity but then within the evangelical camp there are others uh and Craig Evans is a big example. And I quote him repeatedly, as you see in the book, who calls John a horse of a different color altogether. And, you know, he had this series of debates, two debates with um, with uh, Bart Ehrman in 2012. And I mean, Ehrman challenged him. Ehrman loves to bring up, the, he's a skeptical scholar, loves to bring up the gospel of John and really challenge people. So he did that to Evans and Evans just like handed it to him. You, you know, uh, he's like, here, let me say more about how unhistorical John is, you know? And Evans mm-hmm. referred to the John, Jesus, in history session, but he said, so I think there's history in John. And he called them nuggets. So it's like bits of history in John, but it's not in, in its genre. It's not uh, generally to be taken as historical. And it's, now I would say uh, he and, you know, Evans and, and Mike Lacona are to some extent on the same wavelength. I'm not sure if Lacona goes quite as far as Evans does, but he leans in that direction. And then I would say Keener doesn't go quite that far, but he still does. Uh, he'll call passages, you know, somewhat into question, like where Jesus says, um, uh, what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour. Father, glorify thy name. And there's a passage in uh, Dr. Keener's uh, thing on, on John's commentary, where he suggests that John has like moved that from the Garden of Gethsemane, which would be a completely different scene. Uh, whereas Dr. Evans goes so far as to uh, to say that many of the I am statements were like I am the true vine, like with the predicate, as it's called, mm-hmm. were just the invention of the Johannine community because that's what he was to them, and that they were sort of inspired by Jesus' historical sayings to invent these things and dramatize it, put it in the uh, in the gospel. Of John and uh, and Dr. Uh, Lacona has um, suggested that John either John or Matthew changed the way that Jesus appeared to Mary Magdalene, for example, which in John would mean inventing an entire scene. So uh, you get these suggestions. And again, I think there's this idea, well, but I think there's lots of history in John, so doesn't that still make me an evangelical? And I think that really surprises the evangelical layman and the conservative layman to, uh, to discover that this is considered consistent with being considered a conservative scholar.
0: Hmm. This is really interesting because, like, before I read your book, I always assumed that, like, yeah, you know, the liberal scholars or the atheists or the agnostics, these are the the people that are questioning the historicity of John. Um, but, like, in your book, it's like, oh, wow, there's this, like, big evangelical portion. And the next question I have for you relates to, like, arguments, like, against the historicity of John. But if we get into that, I'm just curious, like, what's, like, the evangelical? evangelicals why do you think there's so many that doubt it is it like an argument that's really getting them or is it just like kind of growing up in it's in a scholarly sensitive community that doubts the historicity of john like why do you think there's like a decent size like evangelical group who doubts the historicity of john
1: i think they get i think they get bullied <laughs> i mean if i can put it that way and there's even a certain amount of internal um pressure uh, you know like what are you some kind of fundamentalist kind of thing um mm-hmm. and i i think i sometimes talk about what i call static cling in the scholarly world you know what static cling is you know in the winter mm-hmm. where two of your two of your clothes stick together you know and i think that happens because if one evangelical doubts something then Another evangelical comes along and says, well, if 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 Evangelical A doubts it, he must have good reasons because after all, he's an evangelical. By golly, you know, he wouldn't doubt it if he didn't have overwhelming reasons. So then that guy doubts it. And then along comes the third guy, and he, you know, it's like it's like a, a line of magnets or something, and they kind of get pulled along together. Um, And I've definitely seen Dr. Lacona speak very disparagingly of people who take as strong a position as I do. If you watch his video series last summer, so it's like, oh, you know, she's going against scholarship, you know, and so it was very dismissive. And I think that's very hard for a young scholar to go up against that. Because it's just conveyed to him as a sociological fact. This is the judgment of scholarship, and and you got to go with it, or you're a weirdo, and so forth. Now, some of the more established scholars, you know, you're not going to move Craig Blomberg that way. You know, nobody bullies. You know, Dr. Blomberg is he can stand up for himself. You know, so that's not going to bother him. Uh, and D. A. Carson is the grand old man of you know evangelical scholarship. You know, nobody's out there. Pushing him around, you know. But with the younger generation of scholars that's coming up, if they're just given the impression that, and and I think that's the other thing we have to be careful. There's a ton of scholars out there who don't agree with this. You know, it's like 7,000 who have not bowed the knee to bail, if I could put it that way, you know, but they, they're they not being represented, you know, they're not the loudest mm-hmm. ones or whatever. So you can get a false impression too. Um, I think there's just a lot of quiet majority out there teaching their classes, you know, very conservatively. But um, but when you see these doubts at, at, at a fairly high level, um, I think we're going to, I think if a new younger scholar came along right now who took the exact same positions that D.A. Carson takes on these topics, he'd, he'd be given a hard time and he'd find it harder to stand up to it. And he'd just be told, you don't, you just don't understand. You just don't understand the scholarship. And I think that that's hard and I can stand up to it because I've got nothing to lose, you know, and if they're going to make fun of me for being an outsider or whatever, I'm going to go out there and write a, 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 a gosh darned, book on the Gospel of John and get a ton of really high profile endorsements, which I did, even among scholars who are not as conservative as I am, who said this book is worth reading. Uh, And then I've been invited to uh, present at the ETS, uh, Johannine Literature section. So, um, you know, I'm just gonna do a good work and do good scholarship and I'm not gonna be pushed around. And what I'm trying to do is then bring back, particularly into evangelical scholarship. It's like, hey, let's put out there again that John is just all history. And then the mm. other thing is I'm making it known to the layman what you discovered, which is just because somebody has the label evangelical, it doesn't mean what you might think it means. And so you want to be um, aware of that when you're listening to that person and not assume that whatever he says, it's got to be backed up by overwhelming argument.
0: Sorry, I'm so bad. I like pressed the wrong button. And I thought, oh, no problem. that's <laughs> true. So I'm back. But I heard everything you said until I like, accidentally like skipped out on you. So we're back.
1: So that would you know that would be my answer. I think it's largely sociologically and a sociological and also a false impression uh, that you know, if a thinks it it must be strongly evidenced, and then you've got a and B, and then C comes along and thinks if a and b think it it must be strongly evidenced, and on and on it goes from there.
0: Yeah, that's super interesting. And I think it's something common just among like people in general is that we tend to get stuck in our ideas and it's hard to challenge the status quo. And we see that in John, um, with the Mm -hmm. Gospel of John, it's probably something similar that can easily boil up. Um, So what I'd love to do now is look at some of the arguments against the historicity of John. Um, So Dr. McGrew, like however you want to take this, we'll just look at a couple and just go at them one by one. Um, What is one of the main arguments against the historicity of John and how would you respond to it?
1: So there are categories, Uh, so one category I can list here would be contradictions uh, or alleged contradictions between John on the one hand and Matthew, Mark and Luke known as the synoptics on the other hand. Um, And because of the bias against John, then if there is a contradiction, the assumption is John is the one that's, that's wrong you know um so an example here would be the alleged contradiction about the day when Jesus died on the cross the day of the month that that was in the jewish calendar um and so certain verses are taken to mean that he in john that he died on the the first day when the Passover lambs were killed, whereas the Synoptics make it quite clear that he did had the Last Supper on the day when the Passover lambs were killed and died the next day. Um, and you know, I'm not going to go into a whole detailed discussion of that, but I want I would strongly recommend um, Craig Blomberg has a blog post on that if you want something free, um, and I have a discussion of it as well. The, those verses just basically don't really say that. <clears throat> they're they're these you know, little hints. I mean, what's funny is if John were trying to change the the day of the month on which Jesus died, he's doing it in an awfully over subtle way because, you know, people might just not pick up on it, you know. Um, and so then the idea of saying, oh yeah, this was for this heavy theological symbolic reason. So Jesus was dying on the day when the Passover lambs were killed. It's like, gee, you know, his his readers over there in Asia Minor, where it was published, a lot of them were Gentiles. Like they could have totally missed that. So it's very, very implausible motivation. Um, and all of those alleged uh, verses that supposedly show that uh, don't, he's not really saying that. So for example, John 13, One, where it says before the feast of the Passover, Jesus having loved his own, he loved them to the end. And then it says and supper being over. uh, And people will say, see, it says that they ate the last supper before the feast of the Passover. It doesn't really say that. It says that before the feast, he loved them and he loved them to the end. That's a sentence. And then it says, and after supper. Well, it actually makes more sense to take the supper there to be the Passover that it, it. just had you know talked about that he was anticipating. So that's just one one example um, of a, an alleged contradiction that then is used to John's uh, discredit.
0: So I'm not super familiar. Like I, obviously, like I'm a Christian, I've read the Gospel of John, but like this specific like supposed contradiction, I'm not super familiar with it. So like, what exactly does John say that they um, believe like conflicts with like this synoptic narrative on like the one de- Jesus died?
1: Well, so. There are specific verses in John. So I just gave you an example. Mm-hmm. John 13, one starts out before the feast of the Passover, having loved his own, he loved them to the end, mm-hmm. okay? And supper being over, etc. And the uh, people who think of that as that a contradiction will say that the supper itself was not a Passover meal but rather was eaten before the Passover. Okay. Mm-hmm. And the synoptics are very clear that it was a Passover meal. Like they're super explicit. So if if John is saying he ate the Last Supper before the Passover and the Synoptics are saying the Last Supper was the first day of the Passover, then he died the next day, that would make him dying on a different day of the Jewish year, if you're mm-hmm. following me here. So yeah. it would be shift, it would be John shifting it down. Uh, you know, sort of like if we said that something, one person said something happened on Christmas Eve and the other person said it happened on Christmas Day. You know, that's mm-hmm. that's the claim. Um, but it's it, that's not really true. Cause what it says is having loved his own to the he loved them to the end and supper being over and that just that just is the Passover and then there's another verse where it says that the Jewish leaders in, in John would not come into Pilate's hall because they would be defiled by coming into a gentile's hall and they didn't want to be defiled because they wanted to eat the feast of the they wanted it doesn't say feast it says they wanted to eat the Passover. And and so then the the scholars of the critics who take this view will say see there The Passover hasn't happened yet. The first day of the Passover hasn't happened yet. So John is contradicting the synoptics because they say it was the night before. Okay, but this is on the Friday. This is on Good Friday when they're taking Jesus to uh, Pilate. But when you look into it, Um, they wouldn't actually have been defiled for eating a feast if it were in the evening, because all they would have had to do would be to wash. So it can't be referring to that evening Passover meal anyway. Uh, And other meals within that week, including when you would eat at noon the next day, were also called the Passover, or could be called the Passover. So that was the meal that they uh, didn't want to be defiled, because that, you know, there wouldn't be time for them to be purified, because it was in the morning when they when they were there asking Pilate to condemn Jesus. So those are just examples that are supposed to be saying that, that John has Jesus die one day later in the month uh, than, the, than the synoptics do, but it's not, that's not really the case.
0: So nowhere in John it's explicitly like using the Christmas Eve and Christmas thing. um Like this is not to say Jesus died. This isn't what actually, but just like for analogy, um they say that like Jesus died on Christmas. John never explicitly says like that Jesus died like the day before. It's just something that scholars will try to like say John implies based off of certain. That, that he
1: implies it, and they're inferring it from words like that. You know that they might eat the Passover. They're like, there you go. Or when it says uh it was the preparation for the Passover when Jesus dies, they're like, see. There you go. Mm-hmm. It's the preparation for the Passover. The Passover hasn't happened yet, okay? Huh. But uh, the word preparation there is the same word that John uses elsewhere, and the and the Synoptics use elsewhere to mean Friday. In fact, even in modern uh, modern Greek, Pascha means Friday. So it's it was the Friday, okay, of the Passover. Okay, doesn't have to mean. Um, that the Passover hadn't happened yet because there's a whole there was a whole feast, the feast of unleavened bread. It continu- continued for seven days. So the Friday of the Passover, preparing for it, that's preparing then for the Sabbath that falls within the week of the Passover. So, you know, he says it was the preparation of the Passover. And if you just hear that in English, you're gonna go. Well, there you go. He's explicitly saying he died on the preparation of the Passover. He didn't, Passover hadn't happened yet. He's contradicting the synoptics. But when you realize that it's the word and it's the word that John himself uses elsewhere in that same passage to mean Friday, then you start to understand he's not explicitly saying he died um, on a different day. You're muted.
0: I am a mess today because I've muted myself and I turned off my camera. Um, I'm just crazy. So we're we're good, though. We're going to keep on going. Um, it's a really interesting argument. Um, another argument. What's the second argument against the historicity of John that you think is, that is relevant that you'd love to talk about?
1: Yeah, so um, I'm going to give another category. And so another category would be the category of how Jesus sounds. And that's a biggie, you'll hear that a lot. In fact, one of the things that makes my book unique is that I spend more time on that category than any other book out there that I know of. And there are good books out there on, on the reliability of John. Um, but mine is the only one I know of that spends, i spend three chapters on this topic of how Jesus sounds. And then there's material in yet a fourth chapter it's it's also about it. So it's like I'm just gonna nail that one to the wall, mm-hmm. okay? And uh, because it gets it gets brought up a lot, Dr. Lacona in particular brings this one up over and over again. Um, so the idea is that Jesus sounds too different in John from the way he sounds in Matthew, Mark, and Luke, um, and that he sounds like John sounds. So then that's like aha, you know, this is really suspicious. Uh, because for example, if you read First John, all right. They're clearly written by the same author. First John sounds like the narrator in John, sounds like Jesus in John. So then the yeah. idea is, aha, he's kind of, as I put it, he's making Jesus his mouthpiece. Yeah. Um, and interestingly, I have just had an article accepted for publication in a journal recently. So not just a book, I'm going out there in the peer reviewed literature and, uh, and getting published as well on, you know, is Jesus John's mouthpiece. Um, so the, the you know the claim is it's like really super suspicious that Jesus sounds so much like John. This must be that John is like radically translating Jesus' teaching and kind of putting his own what we might call interpretations of Jesus' teaching into the mouth of the historical Jesus and you know Jesus might have taught that idea somewhere somehow but John's in essence he's kind of making up these discourses for Jesus that are sort of based on Jesus teaching based on uh, some of the concepts or that kind of thing but if you'd been there you wouldn't have actually been able to see anything historically recognizable as say uh, the bread of life discourse in John six or, um, the dialogue with Nicodemus or, um, the farewell discourse in John 14 through 16, because those just sound, they sound too different from the synoptics So that, that's a, a really biggie that you'll hear a lot.
0: Hmm. So I'm just wondering then, like, how do you respond to this objection? Because it's something like I was, when I was thinking about objections, like this is just something like, um, and I, I've been enjoying reading your book when you talk about this, but like, People will say, like, you read, like, even, like, in John 1, before you even get to Jesus, like, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word is God. Like, this is really, like, big, profound stuff, and you get into, like, explicit claims of Jesus' deity, um, and just all kinds of things. So how do you, like, kind of, like, tackle this objection of, um, where it seems like there's many different cases where Jesus, especially with, like, the I am statements, where Jesus seems almost, like, different than what you see in the synoptics?
1: Well, and I would actually categorize that as almost a third category, which is that what you call the Christology is too high. Okay, Mm. Um, what I was introducing here was a different kind of difference, which is supposed to be Jesus' idioms, like his way of talking, Mm. okay? Okay? More like, um, so for example, there are these Greek uh, connectives, you know, like uh, it's sort of chappy. So you Mm -hmm. find like, um, uh, let's see, he came unto his own and his own received him not, but as many as received him to them, gave he power to become the sons of God. That's, that's in the introduction. But then Jesus says something similar. You know, we speak of what we know and testify of what we've seen and you receive not our witness. And so there's this use of, and it's the Greek word mm-hmm. chi and, and, and John just loves and like he uses it everywhere and, 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 where someone with a fancier Greek style, like Luke, for example, would use subordinating conjunctions, you know, since this, then this, therefore that, although, but, you know, and and John just like uses and for all of this. And then Jesus speaks that same way. Okay. Um, Or also uh, in John, Jesus will speak in these connected discourses. So he'll, he'll kind of talk at more length. um, Whereas in the synoptics, Uh, If you read, like, contrast the Sermon on the Mount with um, John the beginning of John 15, the Jesus discussing, "I am the true vine," and you'll see the, the Sermon on the Mount is it's more like little proverbs. You know, he kind of jumps from one topic to another, whereas the the discussion of "I am the true vine" it's it's very connected. Uh, with kind of ideas, the ideas kind of fit together. Um, so then they're saying, "Well, see, John's putting his own own way of speaking into Jesus' mouth. That's not how Jesus really talked." Um, and so, like when I go to answer that. A couple of things that I say. One is that it's it's very exaggerated the supposed difference between the way Jesus talks. I have pages and pages of sayings that are actually very similar, but they're in different settings. So, for example, uh, or you know, ways of talking. So, for example, in the synoptics, Jesus will say to the uh, father of a, a person, you know, "Don't be afraid. Have faith. You know, believe." Right? He says that to Jairus. Uh, the father of a boy with a evil spirit, he says, you know, all things are possible if you believe. Okay, that kind of thing. We find exactly that same thing in John, but in a completely different story. He says to Martha, you know, the sister of, of Lazarus, did I not tell you that if you believe, you would see the glory of God right before he raises Lazarus from the dead? And I've got idiom, you know, phrase after phrase after phrase that's similar like that. So the claim is exaggerated just to start with. And then the the another thing I say is that this is a difference in ways of dealing with reporting Jesus teaching that doesn't amount to non-historicity with either the the gospels uh the first three gospels or John. So if Jesus is teaching at length, you can you can boil it down like the synoptics do and and cut out the repetition, you know? I mean, why would you record, especially if you want it to be easy to remember. Um, But all the teachers repeat themselves, of course, even within a given uh, lesson, they'll repeat Mm -hmm. themselves. Um, So the synoptics aren't trying to report that. They're trying to, to boil it down a little more. And so then that comes out shorter and choppier. Whereas I think John is remembering more. I'm not saying it's absolutely word for word, like a recording or something, but he's remembering more clearly how Jesus historically really taught, and that he really did repeat himself. He really did give connected discourses. If anything, that's more realistic. Um, and I think John did have a really good memory. So these are just different ways of dealing with the way of reporting historical speech when you're not going to have a complete memory of, of how exactly it went. But both of them can be what, what I call recognizable, so that if you were there, And you could understand the language and so forth. You'd be like, "Oh, this is the Sermon on the Mount," you know, or if you were there and you knew the language, you would say, "Oh, this is that part where John's telling his disciples about he's the true vine," you know. Um, Even if it's not word for word, in either case, so that then the styles, because they're solving that, solving that problem of how to report without having every word the same, they're solving it in different ways. The styles tend to come out somewhat different, but they're both equally historical.
0: So. Let's go back. You talked about uh, the high Christology objection, which is something I like briefly um, brushed upon just just a minute ago. Um, So I'm curious, could you just address the high Christology objection to the historical reliability of John?
1: Yeah, I, and you know it's really important to realize that the fact that something is in one document and isn't in another document is not a contradiction, um, and that's it's really important to think about because that's just an argument from silence. You know that, and and Bart Ehrman, the skeptic, will hammer on this. Surely he loves that word. You know, surely if uh, this were. Something Jesus really said. Matthew, Mark, or Luke would have reported it, and it's like, "Don't call me Shirley," you know how that meme goes. Um, no, it's not Shirley. You know that they they were not necessarily saying to themselves, "Oh, you know, how can I bring up the most the strongest thing Jesus ever says to say that He's God?" Um, and 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 as a matter of fact, it's in Matthew that we have, "In the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Ghost." So you know, there's certainly plenty of stuff that implies Jesus' deity. Um, but it's not clear at all that they had as a motive to try to collect and gather all the things Jesus said that would be the strongest statements of deity. Uh, I think we need to get used to the idea that we don't always know why somebody doesn't include something or why an author doesn't say something. And just accept that. We ourselves often don't tell things that you might think we would say. Or that we would tell, so um, we shouldn't. We shouldn't allow ourselves to be browbeaten by that. Well, surely they would say that. Well, you know, maybe not. Um, and since there is uh, implicit high Christology in the Synoptics, there's certainly no contradiction in the fact that they just don't happen to include these statements. Um, so that's just a matter of selecting from historical material that John is selecting different material to report. Sometimes the. the Uh, People will try to give a stronger pitch to this. And unfortunately, this is something I have seen Dr. Lacona explicitly do, even though he's an evangelical scholar, by saying that in Mark, Jesus will tell people not to say that he's the Messiah. Sometimes um, in Mark and Luke and John, he'll even tell the, the evil spirits not to say that he's the Messiah, he tells them not to tell anybody. And this is known as the Messianic secret. And so then the claim is, well, if Jesus was trying to hide that he was the Messiah in, in Matthew, Mark and Luke, so much the more, the real historical Jesus would not have come out and said such clear things. You know, so now we're, now we're theorizing, Hypothetically conjecturing about what Jesus would not have done. And and that really bothers me because it's really weak uh, historically. Like you can get inside Jesus' mind, we know what he would not have done. But the, uh, so therefore, John must be, you know, not historical. He must have made up those things to make explicit what is only implicit in Matthew, Mark, and Luke. In other words, he made it up, you know. He he invented it, and and notice what this would involve is very widespread invention, you know. Like even the scenes where they try to stone him and stuff, you know. How do you how do you say that the the I before Abraham was I am didn't really historically occur, and then have the rest of the scene occurring because that's what motivates the rest of the scene. Um, but that also fails to distinguish his concern about being thought of as the Messiah and his saying that he was God. Those are not necessarily the same thing. We should not let that slide go unnoticed. Like, well, if he didn't want them to tell that he was the Messiah, so much the more, whoop, stop. No, I'm gonna I'm gonna stop you right there. As the saying goes, um, being the Messiah was not automatically in the minds of his audience, the same thing as being God. Um, when they thought of him, if they thought of him as the Messiah, they could have very, um, they could have ideas that would not be consistent with what he was really going to do. Like they tried Mm -hmm. to make him king by force in John 6, it says. Um, And so it's understandable that uh, particularly in Galilee, particularly among the Jews, he wasn't in a hurry to be known as the Messiah. But saying that he was God, you know, that's not going to get him made king. They they tried to stone him for that. So whatever you may say about, you know, Old Testament prophecy, they, I think at the time, did not interpret it that the Messiah was going to be God. Hmm. And so for him to declare that he's God um, would be a shock, but he might have not wanted to be having it blazed abroad that he's the Messiah. And that's actually completely consistent. So there are a lot of answers we can give. And, And one thing that I think we need to just confront people with is a question like this. If God wanted to teach that Jesus is God, then then somebody had to teach that, right? I mm-hmm. mean, you know, if if we're open to the idea, let's just let's just not be a priori opposed to the idea that Jesus is God. And presumably, if you're of an evangelical, you already believe that Jesus is God. So Jesus is God. If this wasn't firmly understood before. And he, we, God wanted people to know that Jesus is God, then it kind of makes sense that Jesus would come out and teach them that he is God, you know. So if, if we think it's plausible that this was a true doctrine, then we need to be open minded to the idea that when he was on earth, Jesus actually taught it so that it would be known, so that it would be unequivocal. And so that his disciples would realize that was part of the part of the doctrine that they were supposed to be teaching.
0: Hmm. Yeah, that's super helpful. Um, so what I'd love to do now, for, we have about 20 minutes left, is looking at um, some of the reasons to think that John is historically reliable. Um, so let's just go through some of the main reasons you think. So what's one, one main reason to think that John is historically reliable?
1: Well, there are just so many categories. It's, it's, it's actually a cool thing. It's a wonderful thing. Um, there's external evidence and this would be but these are little things these aren't like oh he mentioned some famous person like pontius pilate that's no these are tiny tiny little things like um that he mentions that jesus was teaching in solomon's porch and it was winter and so and and then he, and he says because he says it was the feast of the dedication which we call hanukkah well solomon's porch Josephus talks about Solomon's porch. And so it would be somewhat, it would have like a, a roof over it, you know, it would be somewhat protected from the weather, right? Hmm. So all these little tiny things where he, he says, uh, oh yeah, Bethany is about 15 furlongs from Jerusalem. And what do you know? Bethany is about 15 furlongs from Jerusalem, you know, or um, and they went down uh to Capernaum and they'd been in Cana. Well, you know we have some pretty good candidates of where Cana is and we know where Capernaum was. And guess what? It is down, you know, because Mm. you you go downhill. So this is just these, these subtle ways in which he shows himself to be just absolutely embedded in the geography, the culture, the, the places. He mentions uh, the five porches of the pool of Bethesda. These have been discovered by um, archaeology. So, you know, and, and these are, these are parts of the stories. You know, I mean, these are just parts, he's just he's throwing these in there casually as he's telling the stories. And so that confirms, you know, that confirms the stories So these are not just made up. Uh, and they're not the kind of thing, you know, you'll get a skeptic who will go, oh, you could just put that in there on purpose. Well, they're not drawn attention to like that. They're um, incredibly casual they're just in there like someone who actually knew the places, knew the times, knew the customs, and is just saying it in this very natural casual way. Um, It's not at all like fiction and particularly not like fiction of the time. Uh, There was a great video, if you want to throw this in, feel free. Uh, Eric Manning of Testify has been doing these great videos where he'll put um, little drawings to go along with some of my arguments. So we had one recently about incidental details and uh, he had a commentator come into the comments and say something like, they had fiction back then. And so he points to this thing uh, about Callie Roe and it it Mm -hmm. was a romance novel from around the time. And it's like, yeah, it's fiction and it doesn't sound at all like, it doesn't sound at all like the gospels it's this really I went to Amazon I was looking for an example and I hit surprise me on the look inside feature and it comes up with this elaborate funeral you know and how can I describe the funeral and the gold you know it's like really purple really over the top nothing at all you know, people who say that they they can't hear and they can't read the quality of the gospels which is this its very understated memoir are like historical thing, and then they'll just sort of drop in a little true detail as they're going, you know, just kind of in passing, showing their knowledge of things without in any way seeming to do it on purpose. Um, That is a huge, huge mark of truthfulness.
0: Mm. I also think it's helpful just to think about it in like almost like a Bayesian way, where like if like John is historically reliable, like having these little accurate details, like this is exactly what you'd expect if John is historically mm-hmm. reliable. Um, and if John is not historically reliable, well, well maybe John just is like creating historical fiction, but it not necessarily the case. So it, it seemed like even like in a Bayesian sense, this would be some evidence for like the reliability of John.
1: Oh, um, absolutely, yeah. we could give it that kind of modeling because the, the one one way to ask it is if John is not reliable, what's the probability under that hypothesis? of this incredibly clever guy who's making it look casual, but it's not really casual, and he's like really good at mm-hmm. doing that. It's ridiculous. If it's not historically reliable, we'd expect to get something more like, uh, you know, Apollonius of Tyana, which makes all of these mistakes, and, um, you know, that kind of thing. And Because it's hard. These are hard things to look up and then to, well, they didn't have a way of looking them up. They didn't have Google or whatever. Um, Mm -hmm. And then to put them in, in this incredibly subtle way, um, very unlikely, because they might very well be overlooked. For, For example, John was first published in Asia Minor. His first audience isn't going to go, oh, cool. It says going down from Cana to Capernaum. It must be historical. They're not going to know that it's going down from Cana to Capernaum. They live in Ephesus. You know, they're from. Um, they're Gentiles, they haven't been in Cana or Capernaum, probably haven't even heard of Cana. Cana mm-hmm. was this very obscure little town. So there's like no point to it uh, if it's if it's made up and if it's fiction uh, to even putting these things in there. So I think those kinds of external, very, very subtle incidental casual confirmations are very strong evidence of reliability.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, super great. Um, so let's get into another reason. Um, what's another reason to think that John is historically reliable?
1: Well, an internal type of evidence is what I call undesigned coincidences. And as you know, and you can throw a link in for this if you want as well. My earlier book, Hidden in Plain View, was entirely on undesigned coincidences in the Gospels and Acts. And one of the most interesting things is that here John comes under all this special question like we were talking about. John has more undesigned coincidences than any other gospel. Hmm. So it's like he he's even got more stuff. And I think that's because he's so different. It's because he's so different that he has that opportunity to intersect with the other gospels. So for example, I was mentioning a minute ago about how they tried to make Jesus king after yeah. the feeding of the 5,000. Well, Craig uh, Blomberg has pointed this out. He didn't call it an undesigned coincidence, but I think we can call it an undesigned coincidence. Um, why in the synaptic gospels is Jesus trying to keep it a secret? that he's the Messiah. Okay, so that's a question. John provides the answer because they tried to make him king or they would, and he knew they would be likely to try to make him king. Okay, so in a sense, you could almost say that that so-called messianic secret, it's not evidence against John, it's evidence for John because John actually explains it. So we get this this interlocking between them and there are many, many more. Um, For example, in the synoptic gospels, we have the, the blind men in Jericho. Uh Matthew calls says there were two. Mark only mentions one named Bartimaeus, but there could be two, and Mark only mentions one, uh, because that was the one, you know, maybe he knew him. Um and they cry out, you know, they hear they hear the crowd and uh they ask, what's all the noise? What's going on? Mm-hmm. And they tell him Jesus of Nazareth is passing by and they go. Son of David, have mercy on us, right? They start calling out to him. And then he calls for them to be brought. And he says, what do you want? And uh, Bartimaeus says that that I may receive my sight, right? And so he he heals them. Um, It's a really amazing thing, but the Synoptic Gospels never mention any healing of the blind in that region. Now they mentioned they mention a lot of healing miracles up in the Galilee region, including healing healing the blind. Um, I don't know if they tell a specific story, but Luke says, "Oh yeah." Matthew tells about uh, two blind men, and Luke says he healed many who were blind. But that's up that's up in Galilee. This is this is a good several days' walk away in Jericho, down in the south, nearer to Jerusalem. So how did these two blind guys heard? that, um, you know, Jesus even was a healer, much less that he healed the blind, so that their first thought when they hear Jesus is passing by is, yeah, maybe you can heal us, right? Well, I think a good explanation of that, you go to John, what happens in John 9? Jesus heals a man born blind, and where is that? It's in Jerusalem, which is much closer to Jericho, and it's, it makes a big stir, because it even mentions it in uh, in John 11, when Lazarus has died, the people say, could not this man who opened the eyes of one born blind have, have healed Lazarus before he died? So, you know, the word went out, and for that to get to, as far as Jericho, not implausible at all. So very often, they're, they're Unintentionally explaining one another, but in these, you know, just very casual ways. You know, nobody's drawing attention to any of that, um, and it, you know, it's not something that makes sense for somebody to do deliberately because, again, it could so easily be overlooked or missed because John only has one part of it. So then, there's lots more of those. Get a hold of um, mm. both uh, hidden in plain view, and then I have more of them in the mirror or the mask, and also in uh, the eye of the beholder.
0: Hmm. So we have um, just a little bit of time left. So is there like a third reason you wanna briefly bring up to like support the historicity of John?
1: Um, you know, there are so many, I talk about unexplained allusions. Again, Eric has done a great little video on that with drawings and stuff. Um, so I'm gonna give as an example, Jesus is preaching in John six and he says, and he's kind of kind of arguing with the crowd a little bit at the beginning of the, uh, bread of life discourse. And he says, I, I told you already um, that you should, and I think it's uh if you believe on, if you don't believe in me, you won't receive eternal life. I should have looked it up ahead of time, exactly what he says. He told them already. I told you already. And there's no place in John earlier where it reports that he told them that already. Like that's the first we hear of it. Okay, so that's an example of what I call an unexplained allusion. Jesus is alluding to something he supposedly said already. We don't have that in the synoptics. We don't have it anywhere else in John. Now think about the evidence that is for John's accuracy in recording Jesus' speech. Remember I said earlier there's all this doubt cast upon the accuracy of of John recording Jesus' speech, that Jesus doesn't sound, you know, he sounds too different, et cetera, et cetera. If John thought he was justified in making up what Jesus said, think how easy it would have been for him to make up an earlier time when Jesus said that. He could just put it in there, right? And it's like, he could even kind of make excuses. Well, he said he said it before. I don't actually remember when he said that before, but uh, he said he did, so he must have. So I'll make him do it in my gospel. But if John is being careful and scrupulous, then if he doesn't remember that earlier time, he's not gonna put it down. But he remembers the time in John six, when Jesus says, I told you already, told you before. And so he's recording what Jesus said then, and he just reports it because it's true, even though he doesn't have uh, an example of, of Jesus telling them that before. I think that's a great mark of his care in in recording what happened. Hmm.
0: There's so much great stuff, Dr. McGrew. And I encourage everyone, like if you want to see everything that's going on, um, check out the book. So much great content there. Um, So my last question for you is, how does the reliability of John or the lack thereof of reliability um, impact the case for or against Christianity um, as a whole? So I'm just asking like in the bigger picture, how does John fit into the big picture of like the case for or against the resurrection?
1: Yeah, it's really important. And it's been, I think, unfortunate and it's contributed to this, I think, evangelical acceptance of, oh, well, maybe John isn't all that historical, that they kind of got used to doing without John. So for for several decades, there's been this minimalist approach where you're not supposed to use anything that's not granted by liberal scholars. Okay, so Mm -hmm. since John isn't granted by liberal scholars, let's not use it. Oh, well, let's not, you know, let's not rock the boat. That's too uh, controversial. Let's just use the, the synoptics. And that's gotten people used to doing without it, you know. And a, an example I give, it's sort of like if somebody tells you don't use that bank account, uh, you know, you might get in trouble if you use the money in there. Just live without it, and then you know later, if if somebody tells you it's been destroyed or something, you're gonna be like, oh well, I wasn't I wasn't allowed to use it anyway, right? You're not you're not gonna really look into it, um, and I think that's kind of happened with John. People have been too quick to accept that it's maybe not historical because they were afraid to use it anyway. But it it is really important because take, for example, the case for the resurrection, as you said, which gospel has doubting Thomas? John, right? And that's important um, that Jesus wasn't just appearing to people who were sort of positive. He was appearing to someone who was doubting, who was skeptical. John, you know, Thomas says, unless you unless I see and touch his wounds and so forth, I will not believe. So he's there like this, you know, and, and then yes. Jesus shows up. Okay, so that's helpful. Um, John's gospel contains an additional, several additional, couple additional resurrection appearances. There's the one to doubting Thomas, there's the one to Mary Magdalene, which is separate, you know, when they're alone and she thinks he's the gardener. There's the one on the Sea of Galilee when they catch the fish in John 21. So you got like additional resurrection appearances here. If we can't count on John's unique material, we have to you know put a, a question mark over those, like maybe those didn't really happen. Um, we lose evidence for the resurrection and some of those contain his being tangible. And that's so important to the case he, that he invites Thomas to touch him, for example. Or that you know Mary Magdalene is clinging to him, or he eats uh, breakfast with them on the shore of the Sea of Galilee. So that's that's really important. And I think too, when we when we have reasons to trust John, then you know that shows us that it's completely legitimate to harmonize those resurrection accounts. That's not us just being crazy Christians. Oh, we gotta harmonize because our feelings would be hurt if they weren't true. It's historically. Uh, legitimate to do that because John has evidence for him. Um, I think also, as we've just been discussing evidence for doctrine, you know, when people talk about Christianity, um, they'll kind of say, like, it's almost as if the only doctrine in Christianity is the resurrection. Well, that's not true. I mean, you could be uh, a Jehovah's Witness, I suppose, I mean, I'm not saying they really do believe in the resurrection. What I'm saying is, you know, there used to be like, they were called Socinians. They, they didn't believe Jesus was God, and they believed mm-hmm. in the resurrection. Okay, you could be a Unitarian and believe in the resurrection, like Jesus was a prophet or something, and God raised him from the dead. So the resurrection is not the only doctrine in Christianity. And I want to challenge, I don't want anybody to say anymore, if Jesus rose from the dead, then Christianity is true, Period. Stop saying that. We should stop saying that. It's not true. It's a it's a shorthand, and it's become a lazy shorthand, and it's confusing people because there are there are more doctrines even in mere Christianity. There are more doctrines: the Trinity, deity of Jesus, and so forth. And as we've just been discussing, John gives us that more explicit teaching of those doctrines. Um, and if we want a case for Christianity, uh, I don't think we should be tying our hands behind our backs, and you know. The Jehovah's Witnesses, for example, come to your door and say, the Bible doesn't really teach that Jesus is God. Yes, it does. Jesus said before Abraham was, I am. oh, wait, I'm not supposed to use that because John hmm. may have been elaborating on Jesus teaching. You know, you, that's not a good situation to have to be in. So I think a lot really is at stake, but fortunately, we can answer these challenges.
0: Mm. Well, Dr. McGrew, I thank you so much for coming on today. It's been so much fun to talk with you and lots of fun things to think about um, for me is leaving this interview. Um, So thank you so much one last time for coming on today. It's been a lot of fun and I've really enjoyed your expertise and your work and all, all the good things going on here with your work on, on John.
1: Thank you so much for having me, Zach.
0: And thank you, everyone who listened. As always, I encourage you to subscribe, leave a like, all that fun stuff. You can check out a link to Dr. McGrew's book down below, below The Eye of the Beholder. Great read, definitely worth the purchase. And yeah, so thank you, everyone, for tuning in. Have a good one, and God bless.